Good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater. My name is Jeff. I'm so thrilled and excited that you chose to be with us here today. You know, often uh, you hear jokes about people throwing tomatoes and eggs at speakers. Someone came in with eggs today, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5 and chapter 6. Nehemiah 5 and 6, we will get there in just a few short moments. Um, just I have a couple things that I want to say. Just a, uh, one, The first one is a, is a, correct, is a correction of an oversight uh, last week at our uh, search committee, or excuse me, at our question and answer time after church, I introduced the search team, and I failed to mention one important individual, that being Jeff Trubig. Uh, Jeff Trubig is on our search team. He is also um, an overseer, and he also is the individual that stepped in at Aaron's place, and, and he's the guy who makes sure we have a worship team. So didn't the worship team do a great job this morning? Yeah. And the young lady on the keyboards, uh, yesterday was her birthday. She turned the ancient age of 24. Wow. So happy birthday to Taffy. Uh, next week, we're starting a brand new series on prayer. I encourage you to be here. It'll be three weeks long. Uh, we intend and plan to conclude with the day of prayer, and we're working on details about that. Information will come on that soon. I just want to say thank you for those of you who were here last Sunday after church and participated in our question and answer time. Um, it was, there were some hard and uh, definitely good questions that were asked. Hopefully they were answered with grace and love. Uh, one of the key takeaways for me and our Conklin team here was we need to do communication better here at Conklin when it talks, when we're revealing and talking about what we're doing for our search committee, searching for a pastor. I know that I've mentioned it and Reed's mentioned it several times from the, from the platform here, either when I'm preaching or during the host time, but um, to make things a little more pertinent, so to speak, or up to date, I intend to start doing a weekly email, just filling us in on uh, our, what's, how things have changed or where we're moving on the search committee, cast some vision, have some prayer requests, just things like that. So if you don't know if you're on the, the email prayer, if you, don't know if, if you don't know if you're on the email list, fill out the communication card, take it back to the welcome desk, and they'll make sure that you get on there. Uh, thank you to Joel. Uh, Joel and his, and his family are in Guatemala. Their nephew got married down there, so they'll be back in a couple weeks to have some family vacation. But I just want to publicly thank him for him coming and speaking and helping me out. I really appreciate that. It gives me the opportunity to do the other stuff at a campus that I need to do. Today we're wrapping up this series, The Good Work. We've had four weeks of it, three weeks of it, and I just want to do a quick review of, of what we talked about the last three weeks. Week one, we asked the question, what is your passion? What is it that drive you, drives you? What gets you out of bed in the morning that you just can't wait to do? For Nehemiah, it was wanting to go back to Jerusalem and build that wall. Then week two, we talked about um, entering in and engaging into the rubble, the, confronting some of the things in our past, but more importantly, if you have that passion, what are the things that are going to have to happen to make that passion come to fruition? What is it that you have to do? What is the work that has to be done in order to achieve that goal? And then last week, week three, we learned that God uses the willing. Sure, he uses the talented, but he doesn't just use the talented. And what I mean by that is this. Often when, I ask, when people are asked, hey, will you step in and try to do this? Uh, I don't like, I can't teach teenagers. I don't know how to work with kids. God wants, all, all he wants is someone to be willing to do the work. And he'll help you do it. I mean, I don't know how to preach, but he, I'm willing to get up here and try. People ask me, hey, are you preaching today? I said, well, I'm standing up there and talking for 30 minutes. If that's preaching, awesome. 
So we just, God just wants us to be willing. So we're going to wrap up the series today and unpack this question. And the question here is on the screen is this. How can we achieve victories bigger than building a wall? How can we achieve big victories bigger than building a wall? We're going to see that in Nehemiah's situation, the wall was probably one of, doesn't even make the top five in, the, in importance of the things that he accomplished there in Jerusalem. So let's unpack it a little deeper. What do you consider a win? What do you consider a win in your life? Many times we consider, we think about the American dream. You know, we have a, a, a house with a white picket fence and 2.5 kids and a two-car garage and a, and a successful job. Or maybe a win is you retire 55 or 60. Maybe for you a win is us owning and running a successful, a profitable business. There we go. Is earthly success our only metric? <clears throat> is that our only standard? How do we win in life according to God? What is a win for your wife? What is a win for your kids? Is it different than a win for you? How do you think Nehemiah would have answered this question? What do you consider a win? See, a win isn't just having a successful business. But I think a win is being the type of businessman or the businesswoman that has a reputation of integrity and honesty and godliness. Here's something important that I want you to know. I think I have it on the screen here. Who we are while we do the good work is far more important than the good work that we actually do. Who we are while we do the good work, I think is much more important than the good work that we actually do. So today we're going to talk about how we can become the type of people that God can do great things through. And here's the first key fact that I, and truth about Nehemiah that I think is important for us to emulate, that we, we should try and make it a part of our lives. In everything that Nehemiah did, everything he did not do it in his own strength. He didn't try to muster up the willpower, didn't try to do it on his own. He didn't try to put on a, on a show, say, hey, look at me, look at me. From the beginning of Nehemiah in chapter 1 all the way to the end, he was incredibly dependent upon God. From the very beginning, he learned the lesson that we need to understand, too, if we're going to do great things for God, and that's this. We need to humbly recognize our need for God. We need to humbly recognize our need for God. And it's just choking me up because this last week and a half, two weeks, there's been a lot of things on my plate that I had to do. And I have had to recognize this from the very beginning. Unfortunately, I probably didn't recognize it from the beginning, but we need to humbly recognize our need for God. See, so often when we look at the struggles, when we look at the, the things that, we, that are presented before us, when we look at the things, the problems or the things we have to do, we get intimidated by them because we're looking at them through the lens of our own strength. You know what that is? That's worry. Well, I don't know if I can, and what about this, and what about that? And you know, Yesterday I was awake at 2 a.m. thinking about things I was doing late yesterday. I was looking and processing it through the lens of my own strength, not through the lens of God's strength. See, it takes humility to ask God for help from the very beginning. You see, so often for myself, I find that I ask help long after I should have. You know, I struggle, I struggle, I stub my toe and things don't work. And I'm like, oh, did you ever ask God? Oh, yeah, let's do that. See, whether it's a physical task or a spiritual task that we've been asked to help with, so often we just wait to the very end. Now, listen, I'm not suggesting that we become helpless. 
But I think it's important that we, we need to acknowledge that our willingness to our unwillingness, excuse me, our unwillingness to ask God may limit our effectiveness. If we're unwilling to ask God for help, it may limit our effectiveness when it comes to accomplishing things in the kingdom. It's like creating a, it's like creating a ceiling out of our own self-reliance. That's all the farther we can get because we're doing it on our own strength. And that's why I am such a big proponent of small groups. Life is so much better connected. When you're in a small group, you ask and then give permission for people to ask you the hard questions, to hold you accountable. Small groups are getting, we're working on small groups now. They're going to fire up here in the beginning of September. I think you need to prayerfully consider being in a small group. When you're in a small group, you give people permission to ask you the hard questions. Like, are you doing this in your own strength? Are you doing this for your own glory or because you want to make it look good? You know, sometimes we put posts up on Facebook to see how many likes we get just to make ourselves look good. Or are you doing this out of the humble acknowledgement that this is possibly possible only through God? People in small groups can, can ask those questions for you. You see, doing great things, look at this phrase here, doing great things for the kingdom of God are only done through the power of God. Did you catch that? Doing great things for the kingdom of God are only done through the power of God. And the power of God is unleashed through prayer. As we process through the book of Nehemiah and as you continue to read on, you see that every single accomplishment that Nehemiah was given was accomplished because it was bathed and surrounded in prayer. In chapter 1, it talks about him praying before he went in to see the king. In chapter 2, it, talks, it says that he prayed while he was talking to the king. When I sit down and meet with people who want to come and talk with me, I often pray when, when they're talking. Lord, tell me how to answer this question. But then throughout the rest of the book, we see one-liners, little one-liners where, where he prays, and Lord, help me do this, and God, give me strength, and, and on and on and on. But then in chapter 6, the pressure on Nehemiah really gets ramped up. He then gets an attack from the outside. This is described as a peace summit, but it's actually an assassination plot. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. These are enemies from the outside. Then, or excuse me, when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not yet set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Owen. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? See, this, they said, hey, come talk to us. And God gave um, Nehemiah the wisdom that this was an assassination plot. He says, hey, listen, I'm doing a great thing up here. I'm not going to stop it to come down and talk to you. So when that didn't work, they tried something different. Look at verse, starting verse 5. Then the fifth time Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hands was an unsealed letter in which was written this. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, okay, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. 
I sent him this reply, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up in your head. Then they were all trying to frighten us, thinking, hey, their hands will get weak from the work, but it will not be completed. But I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. You see, they couldn't stop him with, by killing him, so they said, hey, let's pretend that there's, they're planning an, an insurrection. They're going to overflow the king. Let's tell them that, Ju- that Nehemiah wants to be the king. Let's, let's make some lies about it. And Nehemiah said, he, he said, that's not true. And that's what we just read here. See, he knew that he needed God's help from the very beginning. There was no point where he did not need God's help. And there's one of those prayers right there. So here's a question for you. Where do you turn when you're overwhelmed? When you become overwhelmed, who do you turn to? Do you go in your house, close your door, sit in front of the TV and binge? Some people turn to alcohol. Some people turn to complaining when they're overwhelmed. Some people turning to asking why. Some people turn to comfort foods like macaroni and cheese or mint chocolate chip ice cream. What do you do? Who do you turn to when someone has it in for you at work and trying to mess you up or trying to get you to, to discredit you? Who do you turn to the next time things don't go your way at home or things don't go your way at work? Who do you turn to when things don't go, go, go your way at church? Do you gossip about people? Do you complain to your wife? Do you complain to your husband or your spouse? Do you complain to God? Do you put it on social media because, oh, you know, whatever? Or do you simply take it to God and leave it with him? Here's something we need to consider and I think is so valuable to know. As we continue to strive for things for God in this broken world, there's going to be roadblocks and detours. We've got to learn how to avoid them. Here's something, and what this this means is this. Folks, we're battling not against human beings. The battle is so much bigger. The passage of Scripture says we battle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritualities, against against things in high places. Excuse me, Satan is at work. Those are the roadblocks. Those are the detours that he throws in our way. That's what he was happening to Nehemiah. That's what happens all the time. See, on our journey to bring light into dark places, just like Nehemiah, we will face opposition. See, Nehemiah had a vision not only to rebuild the walls, but he also had a vision to rebuild the people of Jerusalem because of some of the things that they were, that they were doing. And we're going to learn about that in just a few moments. And when the opposition to slow him down, when the opposition to kill him, when the opposition to stop him failed, the enemy tried something even more devious and underhanded. The outside attack didn't work. So the next slide tells us that he got attacked from enemies from within, from within the owned people of God, the the other Israelites. Look at verses 10 through 13. One day I went to the house of Shima, forgive me on these pronunciations, son of Delia, the son of this guy, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save save me? And I've highlighted this phrase we'll come back to in just a moment. I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Key. Next verse. 
He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. Commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Next slide. So these are those two phrases that I pointed out. I just want to unpack these two phrases here and, and what that means. Because when we read through it, it's like, he's, they're saying, hey, Nehemiah, come hide in the temple. There's someone going to kill you. And he says, someone like me and commit a sin. So stick with me. While it's true that most Jewish men can enter the temple with no problem, okay? They couldn't go into the Holy Holies, but they could enter the temple. But if you read back in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, it says, Nehemiah was in the presence of the queen, okay? No big deal. What does that mean? Well, a study of Persian law reveals that any servant who was allowed to be in the presence of the queen was probably a eunuch. Now, if you don't know what a eunuch is, it's a man who's been castrated, okay? So if you were able to go into the queen, you were probably a eunuch, which means you were castrated. Now you look at Jewish law. Jewish law prohibits a eunuch from entering the temple. So you see the progression here. They, he was a eunuch in the presence of the queen. They said, hey, come into the temple. The Jewish law said, hey, the Jewish law, God said, eunuchs can't be in the temple. So what they were doing is they were trying to trick him into entering the temple to break Jewish law. Not to hide, but to break Jewish law, to hide from these makeup assassins. There were no ones out there trying to kill him anyway. So if Nehemiah would have done this, he would have destroyed his credibility. You see how devious that is? They couldn't kill him. They couldn't lie about him and say there's an insurrection. They said, I know, let's destroy his credibility. Let's tell lies about him. Let's get him to do something so that his credibility will then be gone. Look at verse 11, what he says in verse 11. But I said, should a man like me run away, or should someone like me go into the temple to save his own life? I will not. Nehemiah says, I will not sin to save my life. Nehemiah knew that who he was was the most important thing. See, one of the roadblocks and detours that our enemy throws in front of us that Nehemiah was faced with, and we get faced with it as well, is this. A small moral compromise out of self-preservation or convenience. This was just a small little, a small little compromise. Just something little small that would have destroyed his credibility. You remember that statement I made a couple minutes ago? Who we are is far more important than what we do or what we accomplish for God. And that applies here at Nehemiah. Who he was. He was a man of credibility. See, the Jews would have understood if he hid in a temple. It's okay, he's saving his own skin. But he knew it wasn't the right thing to do. And so he didn't do it. Here's my takeaway, and I want to share it with us with you. People try to trick, try to destroy the credibility of leaders. Leaders are criticized. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. When leaders take criticism, it's, it protects the other people from that criticism. With all the criticism, with all the things that they were trying to do to Nehemiah, guess who it was protecting? The people who were building the wall. The people that Nehemiah was working with. See, in attracting so much of this criticism, they were being protected from it. And the same is true in today's world. When leaders attract criticism, when people try to trick and, and discredit them, even from within the church or even from without, that's the bad news. But the good news is it protects the shepherds, it protects the flock from being attacked as well. And just like Nehemiah, leaders today need to turn 
to God in prayer. So you see, too often, prayer is our last resort when it should be our first. Wise and godly men like Nehemiah realize that sooner than later, that prayer is most important. See, not only did Nehemiah recognize his need for God's help, he also challenged others to live a life of integrity. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. While others are saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others are saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and in our vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and, throughout, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards are belonging to others. Let me give you a quick summary of what these first five verses of these five verses mean in chapter five. See, the sin in this passage was this. The, the rich and the politicians, they were called nobles in here. They're Jews, and they were charging the poor Jews' interest, about 12.7% a year. The poor could not pay this interest tax, so in order to, to pay the tax, the rich would confiscate their hand, land in their homes. If that didn't pay the debt, they would take their children and put them into slavery. Now, collecting this tax and putting their... And, and, uh, confiscating their lands and putting their family into slavery, that was perfectly legal under Persian law. Perfectly legal. But according to Deuteronomy here on the screen, Deuteronomy 23, 19, and 20, this was the Jewish law. Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite. It was legal, but not morally right. It was legal for the, for the nobles, the rich people, to do this, but it was morally wrong. Now, I want to say something that will come across as radical, because it is. And before you shut me out and tune me out, let me finish my thought before, and then you can make a decision. Morality is more important than legality. Whether something is moral is more important than whether something is legal. Legality is not our metric for what is right and wrong. The Word of God is our metric for what is right and wrong. <clears throat> I want you to check out Nehemiah's response to this injustice, verses 6 through 8. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and officials, those are the rich people that I mentioned. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them, verse 8, and then said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Next verse. Now you are selling your own people only to have them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they had, could find nothing to say. Nehemiah gets angry. He gets angry over this injustice and he confronts them and says, hey, this is what you're doing. You know what you're doing is wrong. You couldn't, you're not supposed to do it. I want you to note what Nehemiah did and did not do. He went to the people that were doing the injustice. 
He didn't riot. He didn't loot. He didn't burn down buildings. He went and talked to the people that were committing the sin. And he reminded them of all they had done to get their people out of slavery from the Gentiles. That's what that, that one verse said. We've, there are so many things we've done to get our people out of slavery. And now we're turning around and putting them back into slavery for ourselves. See, that was a cultural norm that he was confronting. That was something that people did in those days, and it was, it was a cultural norm. A cultural norm that had found its way into the people of God. But you know, he wasn't confronting just anybody. He was confronting those people who knew the truth, who knew what was right and wrong, but they didn't care. They decided not to live it. I wonder what Im immoral cultural norms that we have turned a blind eye to that's come into our church. I wonder what immoral cultural norms that we turn a blind eye to that comes into our lives. See, another key piece for us to remember when it comes to God's kingdom and these cultural norms and things we're talking about is the matter of holiness. See, it doesn't matter how big the church is if there's sin in it. It doesn't matter how great your business plans are if they're unjust. It doesn't matter how many great things you can do in the community or you can do in the church if you spend most of your time gossiping and complaining about the people in that community or in that church. Listen, if we're going to accomplish great things for the kingdom of God, it's going to require us to confront those people who are Christians who are disobeying God. But one thing I want you to know, this is very important, he didn't confront non-believers. It's important for us to confront people who are not living by God's word, but not non-believers. So before you run across the street and talk to your neighbor or the person in the cubicle or the person you work with in the office next door, hear me out. God did not call us to confront non-believers for sin. He did not call us to do that. Just like you would not want me to walk into your house and tell your kids what they can and cannot do, non-believers don't want us to tell them what God wants them to do. Sure, we can have helpful conversations. We can share how our sin has hurt us in the past and how Jesus has given us a better way and given us victory over those things. But when you read back of chapter 5 and chapter 6, you notice that Nehemiah never once confronted those men. Were they disobeying God's word? Absolutely, they were disobeying God's word. But they didn't believe in God. So why would anyone expect someone who didn't believe in God to obey God's word? So if a coworker is having an affair and he's not a Christian, yeah, it's probably not your problem. Is it causing problems at work and with the family? I'm sure it is. is what, but what he's doing is not illegal. It's just immoral. And it's not, God has not called Christians to be the moral police for people who are not believers. Check out Proverbs 26. Like one who grabs a stray dog by the ears is someone who rushes into a quarrel, not their own. This, is, this was prevalent in my past. And I just say this. We need to stop expecting people who are not Christ followers to, to act like Jesus. We need to stop expecting people who don't follow Jesus to act like Jesus. We need to live it in front of them. Now, I want to bring that, I'm going to bring this into a modern-day context. I want to bring chapter 5 into a modern-day context. We have a vision, or you have a vision, for a healthy and thriving church. And what is likely to happen in the process of seeing that church grow and become healthy 
you may have to confront people who are doing culturally acceptable things, but if they're left unchecked, they're going to stunt the growth, the church of the growth, or even prohibit it all, altogether. Things like pride, things like envy or lust or anger, maybe greed or sowing discord. Have you ever confronted a Christ follower for any one of these things? Check out this passage from Proverbs chapter 6. There are six, thing the Lord, six things the Lord hates, no seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill innocent blood, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who shows discord in a family. Most of these, except for hands that kill innocent, they're legal. But are they morally right? When was the last time you confronted a fellow Christ follower about any one of these things on the screen or the ones I mentioned before? Is there anything on this list that could keep a church from growing and getting healthy? See, the problem is this. These are culturally acceptable behaviors. And they're probably being done by people that we call friends. See, no one would have thought twice if Nehemiah would have charged interest. It was culturally acceptable. And much like gossip, much like bitterness, much like unforgiveness or things in this verse, they're culturally acceptable and we struggle to confront fellow believers with these things. Consider this example. You, work, you, want, to, you want your workplace to be a place transformed by Jesus. So you may have to confront fellow Christ followers who are living a double standard, like getting drunk on Friday night with, with uh, co-workers and then showing up to church on Sunday pretending that there's somebody that they're not. If you want your workplace or your community to follow Christ, you may have to confront a lazy Christian. A lazy Christian co-worker who spends more time on Facebook than work or whose 10 minutes breaks are 15 minutes long or Friday afternoon they leave 10 minutes early. If you want to see your community reach for Christ, we may have to, you may have to, I may have to confront an apathetic Christian who'd rather binge watch on Hulu or Netflix than spend time with their lost neighbors. We may have to confront Christ followers who would rather be comfortable than missional. And I admit, being comfortable is something I easily slide into. It's a constant battle. But here's the good news. If you're living on mission for God and you're doing these things that God has asked us to do, you may not even have to use words to confront people. They'll be challenged by your lifestyle. You see, by the way Nehemiah lived his life, he was convicting those people that were around him. But yet he had the ability, he had the courage, and he had the strength to use words when he needed to use words. He challenged those people who knew the truth and chose not to live it. But he also gives us a caution. Christ, follow, look at verse 10. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. We, like Nehemiah, need to be sure that we're walking the walk and talking the talk before we challenge other Christ followers on their behavior. It's like that moat and that speck. Make sure you get the moat out of your eye before you challenge someone on the speck of theirs. Nehemiah did confront people on something that he wasn't already doing. He was lending money and wasn't charging interest. He was giving away food 
and not asking them to pay. He was doing himself what he was asking others to do. And the truth brings us to the, this truth brings us to our last point today. If we're going to make changes for God and God's kingdom, we must live the life that God has called us to live. We must consistently live with integrity in all that we do. See, rebuilding the wall and getting rebuilding the wall, getting his hands dirty, being the last one to leave the job site every single day, being willing to do any task, gave Nehemiah the credibility and the authority that he needed with those people. The authority and credibility he needed to make the important changes in Jerusalem that he needed to make, like eliminating, almost completely eliminating slavery and getting rid of uh, the charging of interest and all those things. But imagine what it would have been like if he wasn't a worker, if he had just flown in on his private jet, walked around the wall, poked with the... uh, poked around the levers and the donkeys that were doing the work, shook some hands, walked up to the podium, gave some pious speech about, we're so proud and we got to keep this going, and then got back on his jet and flew away. At best, he would have been ignored, probably laughed at. That would have given him no credibility at all. But that's not what he did. God used his work ethic. God used what he did and his courage and position with the king. God used his generosity. He fed over 150 people every single day out of his own pocket. And some of the people that he was feeding were the people that he was challenging. That gave him the credibility to speak the hard truths into lives of those people and other people as well. As we read through the book of Nehemiah, we learned that he stayed there another seven years. He spent 12 years there total, getting it, buying as many Jews out of slavery as possible. 12 years he was there. He was a governor and did not collect the governor's tax. He did not tax the people around him, even though he could have. See, Nehemiah knew that if he was going to accomplish the mission and vision that God had given him, it wasn't going to be something that he did. It had to be something that he was. He had to be someone who he was. He knew that while he was doing the good work, it was far more important. Well, who he was while he was doing the good work was more important than what he was doing. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whether you drive a dump truck or a garbage truck, do it for the glory of God. Whether you plow snow or crunch numbers or milk cows or plant corn, do it for the glory of God. Maybe you do hair. Maybe you change diaper, adult diapers in a nursing home. Maybe you teach kids. Maybe you drive over-the-road trucks. Whatever it is, do it for the glory of God so that you'll have the credibility and the ability to talk truths into people's lives. I met my friend Randy Hessler about 30 years ago at a previous church. Randy is a quiet, humble man of God. He got married when he was a senior in high school to his high school sweetheart, who was a junior in high school. Randy never went to college, never went to trade school. He has been a laborer all his life. He's not a perfect man, but he has lived consistently with integrity in everything he does. He's honest and dependable, and he's a grateful man who loves his wife and kids. And everything Randy does, everything is for the greater good and for the glory of God. Randy knows that in order for him to accomplish the mission that God has given him, it can't be something that he does. It has to be who he is. In my mind, Randy is a modern-day Nehemiah. 
Your mission on earth isn't to drive a water truck. It isn't to plow snow. It isn't to drive a garbage truck or to milk cows or to do hair or to change diapers. It isn't to teach kids or whatever it is. That's not your mission. Your mission is to make more and better disciples. But how you do those other things, how you do what God has gifted you to do, will give you the tremendous credibility and authority to speak into people's lives about what's really important. Remember that question we started with? How do you define a win? That's what this is all about. How do you define a win? What's more important than building a wall? What's more important than driving a truck or crunching numbers or painting and building houses? Who you are is so much more important than what you do. So a couple questions to wrap up before we're done here. Have you become self-reliant and not prayerful enough? Would you say about yourself, yeah, I've tried to do it on my own strength. My challenge is to pray about, that, pray about those things at least twice a day. Get that habit started. Have you been overlooking sin in other people's lives that's preventing the mission from going forward? Do you need to have a conversation this week with somebody? And finally, have you allowed a small compromise towards sin in your life to limit your credibility? Make today the day that you turn around. Repent, come back to God, and start moving back toward what God has best for you in, in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the challenge. Thank you for the example of Nehemiah and how he knew who he was was more important than what he did. I thank you for the series that we've gone through the good work. I pray, God, for my friends in this room. I pray for that individual who may have had just a small moral compromise out of convenience. God, I pray that today would be the day that they make that change. Lord, I pray that there's people in our lives that we need to confront. I pray that we, you give us the, the courage to do that. But more importantly, Father, help me to live the life that you've called me to live. Help me to be credible. Help me to be accountable. And my friends as well, in Christ's name, amen.